1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ethnographic Marginalia, a special series on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Anavarapu.
2: And I'm Alex Diamond.
1: And we are the hosts of this special series.
2: Ethnographic Marginalia brings together a set of conversations around ethnographic practice. In each episode, we will converse with an ethnographer about their research design, process, and fieldwork experiences.
1: This special series centers the dilemmas tribulations, mistakes, and pleasures that go into doing ethnographic research. We hope to use the conversations that transpire on this podcast as an opportunity to build community amongst ethnographers in various disciplines.
2: Towards this end, we also have a website where we publish field notes, ethnographic essays, photo essays, and methodological reflections.
1: Please visit our website, ethnographic Marginalia, at www.ethnomarginalia.com to know more about how you can publish with us. We really look forward to hearing
2: from you. Before we proceed with this episode, we'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Ethnography Incubator at the University of Chicago and the Lozano Long Institute for Latin American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. And on that note, let's begin. We are extremely fortunate today to be joined by not one, but two fascinating guests, Dr. Victoria Reyes and Dr. Marco Garrido. Victoria is assistant professor of sociology at the University of California, Riverside and researches cultures, borders, and empire. Her 2019 book, Global Borderlands, Fantasy, Violence, and Empire in Subic Bay, Philippines, focuses on the everyday experiences of people living in a former military base that's now a foreign controlled semi-autonomous zone of international exchange. Using them as a window into broader economic and political relations, and the continuously reimagined identities of the people living there. Marco, assistant professor of sociology at the University of Chicago, researches the relationship between the urban poor and middle class in Manila, highlighting the role of class in shaping urban space, social life, and politics. His own 2019 book, The Patchwork City Class, Space, and Politics in Metro Manila, shows how the proliferation and proximity of slums and upper and middle class enclaves in Manila affect class relations and politics, leading to feelings of insecurity and discrimination and hardening and politicizing class boundaries. As well as both accomplished sociologists and ethnographers of the Philippines, Marco and Victoria are the co-editors of the new special issue of Contexts, New Ethnographies of the Global South. So Marco and Victoria, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and congratulations on putting out a wonderful special issue.
3: Thanks so much, um, Sneha and Alex. I this has been really wonderful chance to come and talk with you on the podcast, and we're really excited about the special issue. Um, Marco and I have been working on it for a very long time.
0: That's right. Yes, thanks, Sneha and Alex. It's ha- I'm happy to be here.
3: Yeah, um, I was.
1: I just finished reading the special issue, and it's so so wonderful and so excellent to see such a you know, bright group of scholars all contributing such interesting ethnographies of the Global South. And Alex and I were both curious to know more about how did the idea for the special issue come about? When did you both decide to actually go for it? And was it an idea that was long brewing or was it like a flash of inspiration that you had someday?
3: Yeah, so it's actually funny. Um, Risselle Perenas, who is at USC, it has been a good mentor and friend to both of us if i can say marco if i could speak for you for a little bit there and one day she just mentioned to me for me and marco to think about doing a special issue and you know suggested context and i kind of ran with that and emailed marco and we had a lot of conversations. So one of the things I miss the most about conferences are the dinners and chats you have with people. And in particular, Marco. Marco and I get together a few times a year because we go to not only ASA, but the Social Science History Association. Um, and so then we just started talking about it and, and thinking about our visions for sociology. Um, the special issue I can tell you, and then I'll I'll let Marco talk, It has really gained, I've gained a lot of insight into kind of the editorial process. Margot and I, you know, we talked about it. We got so many submissions that were really wonderful. And then we just um, commented on all of them. We had to work through kind of differences. uh, In opinion, we also had to, you know, we commented on proposals, the first draft, the second draft. um, And it was really a true collaboration. And and I had a really wonderful time um, collaborating with Marco.
0: To add to what Victoria is saying, um, you know, I'd also say that the idea for a special issue like this one, or just to feature ethnographies of the global south, has been long in the making, has been long brewing. uh, for me, and, and perhaps too for Victoria, um, we've been cognizant of, of just how much good work is being produced by students, both international students and American students, um, that's, that's really paying close attention and really describing in thick terms the circumstances, the realities, the conditions, the predicaments um, in, uh, across a number of countries in the global south. And so seeing this on the ground among my own students, um, particularly, um, really made clear to me that there's something going on here, that there's a change. And so I think of this issue, in a way, as a shot across the bow, as, as really the beginning, but certainly not the final statement of, of what's going on. I, I think it's going to take a little more time, more projects, maybe an edited volume, maybe you know more articles uh, to really capture this, this moment. I think the discipline is changing, and, and part of the way it's changing is is this efflorescence of ethnographic work, focusing on the Global South. And, and um, as we mentioned in the, the issue, it's going to have effects on the, the paradigms that sociology is accustomed to turning to, the way we think about um, you know, standard categories of sociological thought, everything from state, class, civil society. Um, you know, all these kinds of things. So I like to think of this issue as the beginning uh, of something that's happening.
1: Yeah, I mean, I love the way you put that, like uh, the beginning. And, you know, as someone who's had extensive conversations about this with you, Marco, I, I felt like um, it really was long brewing in, in a sense. It was great to hear um, the process of how this all came to be. Um, I had another question as a follow-up, I guess, to this is... Um, is there something specific about ethnography that you both think uh, might be particularly important for Global South scholarship and sociology?
3: Well, I think we're both trained as ethnographers. And what Marco was talking about and getting at is really thinking about reality on the ground, right? And and so Marco has also... Um, edited a special issue or symposium for city and community with colleagues about rethinking keywords in urban sociology. And I think this is also um, uh, another step in that, in that ethnography is really about understanding what's happening on the ground, the importance of being there, the importance of deep immersion and understanding and getting to know what life is like. And so I think that was both important for us is, is thinking about the people who were studying and thinking about the context in which they live, which is quite different between the global South and often what is heralded in U.S. sociology, right, is our U.S. cities, right, our, our U.S. context. And so to really not, and we talk about this in the intro, that Sociological concepts cannot just be exported from the United States to non-U.S. countries. And so we have to kind of go into the field and, and figure out. And I think that for both of us, you know, we both, you know, study the Philippines, have ties to the Philippines and, and thinking about how that shapes our own, or at least for me, positionality, epistemologies um, and whatnot.
0: I think ethnography is important because the focus of ethnography is on description, and description is under uh, is under recognized as um, an important mode of um, of social science analysis. Description matters here because so much of the realities with which we're concerned in these places are either um, misrepresented or under or, or simply not represented, and so. The the act of describing it, and not just describing it in broad terms, but describing it thickly, getting at the meaning behind it, describing it, that is, representing it in a sophisticated way, um, gets at the various subtleties and sophistications of meaning. It's quite important. It's it's, it's really an elementary step um, that paves the way for a deeper understanding, a deeper analysis of what's going on, um, and good, thick description. Um, can not only help us theorize with more clarity, more sharply, um, but it can also lead us to reflect on existing theory, on on, standard categories, and it will force us to revise it. So really, insofar as the emphasis, the core of ethnography is thick description, that's absolutely essential with these kinds of places, which for so long have... Fallen, they're off the map, right? They're out of it, they're not on the radar, or they're um, assimilated into terms that do them some injustice or even some violence um, that misrepresent them. Um, and so that's why ethnography is absolutely crucial and central to this undertaking.
3: And I'll add I mean, I think I absolutely agree 100% with what Marco said, and I will just While he emphasizes the thick description, I mean, I think the other key part is this theorizing. And in the special issue, we worked very hard with the authors of every piece, right? Not only the feature pieces, but also kind of the, um, you know, intimacy in, um, and some of the other kind of um, aspects of the special issues is to really connect it to theorizing Right? So so it's description. And as Marco said, and I, and I just want to emphasize that, that it's this relationship to theorizing and our knowledge about how social life works. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I remember, uh, I think it was on Twitter, Victoria, that we joked a little bit about how I don't think any of the authors expected such kind of rigorous feedback on every step of the process. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, as, as an author in the issue, I really appreciated it. So thanks for that kind of attention to detail to both thick description as well as theory, yeah.
0: We took the pieces very seriously. We had a lot, Mm -hmm. we had had a a number of conversations over the summer, almost once Mm -hmm. every week or sometimes every other week. And they were always fun. Um, But um, a good part, a a good chunk of our discussions were spent on each piece. Mm -hmm. We read them all and um, we argued about words. We argued about, (laughs) we argued about merit. and really, in order not to overwhelm the authors, even the feedback that you received, in addition to the peer reviews, mm-hmm. um, was a scaled back version of <laughs> um, you know, our thinking on, on every piece.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's
1: clearly and, a project of passion and compassion. But, yeah.
3: And I think that uh, those conversations, and, and some were difficult to have, right? Um, right? But I think that it has made me appreciate kind of just our intellectual synergy or how we build on one another, how we differ. And I just have a, so much, I don't want to say more respect, because I always respected you, Marco, but <laughs> <laughs> I think Thank you um, <laughs> it was just so enlightening, right? To be mm-hmm. able to have these conversations in um, together about these pieces and, and see how our uh, visions you know, converge, diverge, and and I think that that is something um, that I, I'm really grateful for our collaboration.
0: Yeah, yeah, me too. And it, it's nice to feel comfortable enough uh, to be able to argue or to disagree. Yeah, uh, about <laughs> about certain things. I
2: I don't know what Sneha would have to say about this, but this is um this is making me think a lot about the experiences that we've had in terms of uh, in terms of editing ethnographic marginalia. Um, which I would say is, I mean, the what what you guys are saying about each other is is wonderful. I would say the same thing about the the collaboration um, with Sneha, and also that in in sort of editing other people's pieces and trying to communicate um, to authors that it, it's I think something that can be very useful uh, for an editor in terms of like uh, figuring out what really matters in in ethnography or or sort of developing uh underdeveloped ideas.
3: Yeah, I think that's so important um and it's a real skill that people have to learn, right? People joke all the time about reviewer number 2. <laughs> but I think that being able to give and receive feedback um especially because many of our um the authors and the pieces are more junior, although some are are senior as well. Um but even you know, we talked about how do we give berway feedback, right? Like <laughs> How do you do that um, in a way? And so, so I just think that learning how to give and receive feedback is an essential part of our profession. Right, that's the bedrock of academia.
2: Absolutely. Um, well, we want to get back to the to the special issue, but um, first, uh, sort of drawing off of both of your your descriptions of ethnography as sort of thick description and and theorizing and, and combining sort of an on-the-ground look at, uh, at empirical realities with something sort of broader and more abstract, um, we were curious just how each of you ended up being ethnographers um, and ended up studying uh, the Philippines. So I think one thing we're going to talk about is that within, you know, h- historically within American academia, uh, studying the Global South has been somewhat marginalized. Um, so yeah, how did how did you how did each of you end up becoming ethnographers of the Philippines? I I
0: became an academic period, not just an ethnographer, but an academic, in order to study the Philippines. I I didn't really have an idea that I'd be going into graduate school when I was in high school or in college, but after college, I ended up in the Philippines doing various kinds of work, um, NGO work, journalism, mm-hmm. and so I lived there for a few years, and I was struck. By how different everything was, and how I had to question or, or interrogate a lot of my assumptions about um, how to understand the world. Mm-hmm. And, and so this difference was incredibly f- both fertile and um, it felt urgent as well. I, I felt like I had to make sense of it, uh, better understand it, and share it, convey it. Um, and so, you know the several years I spent in Manila doing various kinds of work. I think mm-hmm. they, I think what incubated was was a an intuition, a sense that um, I wanted to make something of this this sense of difference, try try to um, better explain it and, um, and bring it into dialogue with the way people understood the world almost reflexively um, in, in kind of a dominant scholarship. And so, you know, to put it, to kind of cut to the chase, um, I ended up applying to graduate school precisely because I thought, you know, I had a vague idea that maybe in graduate school I can, I can start doing some of this kind of work. I ended up in a sociology program. Um, it didn't have to be, but I ended up in a sociology program and it was very natural, like a fish to water, to, to take up ethnography as a method, precisely because um, the reason I, I applied to graduate school in the first place was to describe, to um, make sense of, um, and ethnography to me is the most concrete. It's the most co- concrete method, the most concrete form of collecting data. It's data in its in its rawest, most natural form, not abstracted into numbers or to concepts or you know, it's simply, you know, organizing elements of experience um, in a way that that's suggestive, that's meaningful. Um, so I didn't really think about it much. It just, feel, it just felt automatic precisely because the impulse even to, to, to do the, just to kind of do academic analysis, to be in graduate school, um, it, it followed directly from that. So it, it wasn't a choice. You know, there were never there never was a choice. In other words, of you know, whether I'm going to do linear regressions or be an ethnographer, <laughs> it, 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 just, it was simply it was simply what felt
3: right. Yeah, thank you for um, going first, Marco. I, I wanted you to go first just because I've talked about um, my kind of uh, path uh, to this before. Some of it is in the preface of my book. I mean, I I kind of started my intellectual curiosity was in Asian American studies um, as an undergraduate, right? Judy Wu, who's at UC Irvine and who I still talk to, um, has been a lovely mentor. Um, And for, it was an Asian American women's history class. And for the project, we had to do an oral history. And so I did my grandma and she's the one who raised me, right? And so her kind of, migration story of um, migration through marriage to a U.S. serviceman um, really got me thinking and puzzled as I was reading about kind of U.S. empire um, and kind of juxtaposing her nostalgia to a lot of extent with what I was reading and, and not seeing that reflected. And so then I did a, a, you know, a thesis about Filipina marriage migrants. I did a, um, a heritage program in the Philippines at, at UP Diliman. Quezon City. Um, After that, I did a Fulbright um, back in the Philippines, back at UP Deliban. And um, there I kind of uh, interviewed and and got to know women who were mothers of Amerasian children, some of whom were sex workers, some of whom were not. Um, and so it seems almost like a linear story that that led to my book. But in graduate school, it actually wasn't a linear story. Um, you know, it wasn't obvious to me that I would circle back to this puzzle um, and these interests I had. We had uh, two empirical papers we had to write um, before we at Princeton before we um, had to go to our dissertation and one had to be quantitative, right? So we had to write a quantitative paper. Um, And I actually really appreciated that, right? Because I see methods as tools for the kinds of questions that that we asked. And actually my second paper ended up being quantitative as well. Um, But then kind of the puzzles I always have, right? It's very similar to Marco. It's very people-centered, it's very narrative. And so thinking about um, the kinds of questions I have, then the debates I want to engage in, right? Because I see, I see, and I suspect most people do research as a scholarly conversation. Um, and those were the conversations I, I wanted to be having and, and what people actually said, what people do, what life was like. I mean, the difference, I think that there's something just about being there, right? Even if you, you know, I do, both contemporary ethnography, but also what people call historical ethnography. And I know some ethnographers don't consider that ethnography because it's from the past, um, but either way, I think that there's something about being there and seeing what is going on um, that just really speaks to me as a sociologist and as um, someone who does research and, and the kinds of questions and puzzles I'm, I'm interested in pursuing. Yeah,
1: thank you for that. That was uh, really helpful and it kind of gets me to a question that I've been uh, been very curious to ask you both is, well, the trend currently in American sociology seems to be uh, positive towards, you know, doing international fieldwork and, you know, your context issue is uh, one step in that direction, for instance, but did you encounter pushback for doing international fieldwork in grad school here and what kind of advice did you get and how did you negotiate that?
3: Yeah, you know, I... For me, I didn't get any pushback, right? I am very lucky to have incredible mentors, right? Miguel Centeno and and Viviana Zelzer in particular. Um, And they are the kind of mentors I aspire to be in terms of they just really wanted me to do whatever it is I wanted, right? And to do it rigorously, to do it, you know, and how to support kind of the vision I had for what I wanted to do. So I never got any pushback for doing it, but I, what I encounter is the difficulties, you know, um, when I was at Princeton and it's still there, right? So it's a, a large kind of urban ethnography department with Mitch Deneer there. You know, I took ethnography classes with him and there's just a, a big difference between doing urban ethnography, you know, where you live, um, you know, where you can just go and hang out and be there, you know, during graduate school, without special funding. Whereas non-U.S. field work, right? I have to get funding, right? I have to be there physically, and this was all before Zoom and virtual, right? So I'm lucky; I also didn't have to teach, right? We got full fellowships, and so I was able to just go and 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 spend time there, and and I would Skype with uh, with Miguel often to ask questions, and so for me, I think the pushback. Has always been um, just the frustrations of doing non-US field work um, in terms of how time constraints work, how being there works, the constraints to that. Um, and I also think, and you know, I think we may talk about this later in terms of just how to write our work, right, and how to publish um, non-US based field work, and and how to publish. I think is is a different skill, but I didn't get any pushback and I try to be the mentor. I the any pushback I kind of give is more to theoretical and methods of, of my um, you know, of the graduate students I work with, right? And and trying to help them be as rigorous methodologically, theoretically as as possible. So I'm I'm very lucky in that way that I was never discouraged from doing international field work.
0: I wasn't discouraged directly, but there were currents of discouragement, um, both present in the department, my grad school department, but also, I think, in the discipline and in in conferences. Um, You know, this idea that international field work is less interesting to the general sociological audience, that it takes more time, it's harder to get a job. Um, You know, and so people, in reaction to the narrowing of the market, the difficulty in finding jobs, I would often hear some scholars discourage their students from doing work abroad, um, You know, for, some for pragmatic reasons, funding time, others simply because they found it less interesting. So that's one current of discouragement, but um, perhaps a more important, more palpable one is simply the fact of having to explain yourself to audiences. Um, let's say you study, weather, and, you know, Victoria and I study the Philippines, but it could be Bangladesh, it could be India, it could be Brazil. Um, maybe a little less so today, but but um, there's a lot of explaining you have to do. You have to situate the site, the context. You have to situate. You have to talk about the situation itself, whether, whatever it is, whether it's you're studying uh, an urban phenomenon or a political one. So you have to. So so the, the the first thing you have to do is you have to do a lot of explaining. But the second thing you have to do is you have to justify why this should matter to. Um, particular audience members. Now, perhaps, you know, uh, the need to do this justification has diminished, and I hope it has. Over time, it seems like it has, um, but it's still there, you know, and oftentimes, I would get the comment, not always so bald-faced, but sometimes, um, so why should I care? Or or why should this matter to somebody who has no interest in the Philippines? Um, whereas when people talk about neighborhoods, even in the United States that question never comes up um, I have a you know I, I'll be happy to receive that question because it's a question that I've had to think about um, and that I have um, an answer for that I feel very strongly about and in short the answer is because we all live in the same world and um, sociological phenomena may differ according to context and sight as, as, as well as time of course In order to truly have a grasp of these things, of these phenomena, you need to understand them in their various manifestations. So there's a very good sociological answer for it. So that doesn't bother me anymore. But simply to get the question suggests that you have to cater to certain kinds of audiences. And like I said, I think perhaps that's less so today, but but I still feel it. um, And I look forward to a discipline that is that is truly global, I mean, in terms of the articles we see in journals, for instance, the top journals particularly, um, in terms of the job market talks we see in you know, these kinds of things. So I do think we have a ways to go. Yeah. But I, again, I do see it changing.
1: Yeah, and since, you know, Victoria, I think you also alluded to it, so I guess I'll just ask a question I'd say for later, like now, uh, which is this, this dilemma of, I guess, translation, and I'm not just speaking in terms of language, which is, of course, Um, a debate in in and of itself, like how much to write in a local language. But I guess this, um, confusion about writing about India for, like, I work on India, so I feel this, this dilemma about writing about India for an American sociology audience that has to be spoon-fed every detail rather than writing for a South Asian audience that might already be more familiar with the context. And for instance, whenever I present my work, Um, I have to stress that Hyderabad is a southern Indian city, but my American counterparts will just say Irvine or Houston or whatever, and I'm expected to know where it is or uh, why they're important cities or even neighborhoods, as Marco was actually just pointing out. So I feel like, sometimes I feel like sociologists of the global south should get like extra word limit in journals or something to spell out the context. Um, But how, how can we as teachers and members of the discipline, I guess, can, how can we start making amends um, to these kinds of insidious inequities that just remind students working in the global South that they're always going to be outsiders to the discipline? If
3: you have any mm-hmm. thoughts, both of you. Yeah. I, I mean, so I would agree with Marco in terms of publishing and our audience that that's where the pushback has been received. Um, you know, I, I see so the previous question, I interpreted as more of like my own experience in mentorship and and the actual process. But as I mentioned, like I think that publishing, there is this, as you said, you inter- you kind of term it this translation. Um, I don't know. To to some extent, I think another option is instead of kind of. Um, people uh, who are researchers of the global South having extra words or or not having, like, we come to a point where they don't have to explain. I, I, in fact, think it should be almost the opposite, is that everyone should explain their field site. Everyone, why should we care about Irvine, right? And I think that that, knowing the limits of our knowledge, contextualizing our knowledge, um, makes it richer, makes how we understand the social world and its contours much more nuanced, which, you know, I believe in nuance. (laughs) Um, I, you know, I think that that could be something, right, is pushing for people to explain their sites. And it should be everyone, right? It shouldn't just be kind of global South scholars um, or scholars of the global South, but instead we need to interrogate the limits of our knowledge, even if you study Irvine, even if you study Chicago, right? Um, And and the Chicago school that we have to contextualize and recognize the limitations and contours of knowledge production research.
0: I think that's right. Uh, The issue for me is less empirical novelty. In other words, you know, some contextualization, some situ- situating is, is crucial, regardless of, of what site you study, what place you study. The issue um, is really about a framework that's flexible enough um, and capacious enough and uncertain enough to be able to accommodate realities that um, realities and analyses that are vastly different uh, from the ones we often take for granted. Now, if we take seriously the fact that our concepts, our analytical frameworks, our approaches, maybe even our methods, are determined by our situatedness, our embeddedness in place and time, then so, for instance, thinking about the urban is influenced by the city of Chicago, insofar as sociologists, early sociologists, and contemporary sociologists take Chicago as a model, and so it's no, no surprise that the emphasis is on things like segregation, social isolation, race. Um, you know, insofar as there's that connection, what we need, um, you know, are, are an acknowledgement that these frameworks might be narrow and that we need a more frameworks that are able to accommodate realities. In this case, you know, I'm talking about cities, but it could be politics, it could be other things, realities that look very different. Um, so that's what I'm looking forward to. And that's what I have in mind when I, I think about um, globalizing the discipline, globalizing sociology, a bit more uh, uncertain, c- uncertainty, flexibility, capacity to accommodate capaciousness in our conceptual frameworks. And that's what makes it exciting. Um, the fact that, you know, we're not just describing um places and situations and conditions around the world that we can then integrate into pre-existing frameworks, assimilate them, as it were. But rather, these descriptions offer the opportunity to revise the way we see the world, essentially to um, decenter the experience of one country, particularly of the United States. You know, it's not that it's not interesting, it's not important, it still is. But um, what's important is that that set of experiences put alongside the experiences of um, groups of people in other parts of the world. And that's
2: what's exciting. In in your letter from the editors for the special issue, um, it's very relevant to what we're talking about. Um, And what you said was that you believe the proliferation of qualitative work on the global South, uh, quote, augurs a movement beyond Mm -hmm. the historically domestic focus of American sociology, this work moves outside the shadow of U.S.-centric frameworks and beyond the need to bring findings back to the U.S. As articulated in the oft-heard query, that's interesting, but what does it mean for us? I.e., why should I care? The new ethnographers of the global south do not feel compelled to justify their field sites in terms of their relevance to the U.S. Um, and I thought that was an, an amazing statement, um, really powerful Uh I wholeheartedly agreed with the spirit behind it. Um, My question, I guess, was how much that was, um, you know, realistic in terms of uh, that people actually don't, don't feel pressure to justify their field sites, if that's what you meant, or whether it was, um, you know, something that we should fight for, something that we should struggle for and, and hope for, for the future. And I'm, I'm asking because I, uh, a friend of mine actually just just read um, and gave me comments on something that that I had written about about Colombia, and and one of his comments was, "You should relate this back to the U.S." And this is a friend who um, who studies the global south, um, but uh, but was saying that that was a very real um, a very real pressure. Um, so I'm curious, what was this more of a statement of defiance or Or do you think that 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 sort of um, those pressures have changed?
3: I mean, uh, Marco can say more about this, but I think that if you're looking at it in a long term, that it's almost both. Right. That there's increasingly people and work moving more towards the center of sociology. um, But that doesn't mean it is there yet. Um, One of the kind of aspects and perhaps the pushbacks or difficulties that relates to this and and the previous question, I think, is just the structure of academia and knowledge production. Right. And and Marco mentioned kind of reviewers. I get reviewers as well thinking, why the Philippines? Why this one city? Oh, you need to kind of um, isn't the Philippines just a special case or an extreme case? and um, you should do comparative, right? Um, You should compare it and include multiple countries, right? Um, And I think that, you know, in that respect, that's where kind of the defiance or kind of the work needs to be done. So for example, one of the things I was um, membership chair of the community and urban sociology section um, for a few years and one of the first things we did was count the award winners of the book award. And how many were U.S. and non-U.S. right? And and we could also think about the gender component, the racial component, and and whatnot. And I think that in order um, for the discipline to really change, um, is to really think about the knowledge production and the journals. So right now, um, you know, one of the frustrations I I kind of have with sociology, or, or in particular is people who talk about that something has kind of never been done before, right? And and that's how they get into, you know, ASR, AJS. And but Marco is very good at this, right? So I want to hear he's he's cracked that. Um and you know, there are, you know, people in in top programs who are doing global south work who who have really paved the way. But in fact, a lot of people have done work on the global south and a lot of people have written but our discipline is so central around just a handful of articles about get, what's get written and and who is being cited and what journals and the scholars are not being cited right what is the work that tends to be published in ASR AJS right and so i think that you know, writing for these journals, you know, and I've written and published in social forces, there's a particular skill to be had, it's a particular format. But I also think um, what you have are reviewers who give this kind of feedback, right? And I think for me, what I would like to see is strong editorial pushback, or kind of thinking about an R&R instead of a reject, or really kind of thinking about the importance of knowledge production, because there have been so many people who have written about similar topics but what i mean this is all behind you know the um the movement of the hashtag site black women right um that black women have written about a lot of things right and and they tend to not be cited it's a politics of citation right it's the politics of academia and so i think for things to really change is one is people um who like Marco, like myself, like, like all of you and like many others, um, following the paths paved way by people before us is to get into these positions of power and use our position to help translate that work, right. To help kind of think about what kind of scholarship is published, gets recognized. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I could, I could go on and on, but you know, Marco, (laughs) um, I'm eager to hear your thoughts
0: on this. Sure, let me start with your point, Alex, about this pressure—the the, this pressure uh, you feel to um, relate your findings to the United States. First, I want to acknowledge that that pressure is real, um, and that it's important to address. Um, but here's how I think about it, and and I want to make a I want to make a distinction. So I think first that it's important to relate our findings to the United States. I don't think that's the same thing as as justifying our findings in terms of its relevance to US scholarship or or conceptual frameworks um, formed with the US as a model. How we relate our findings to the US is what's important. So one reason to relate it to the US is simply as Victoria pointed out for strategic reasons, precisely because there is a politics involved in getting things published. But for me, the the real substantial reason, apart from that, as important as that is, the real substantial reason is because what's important here is that um, we put in conversation findings from different parts of the world with established findings that are often taken for granted in the U.S. context. We put that into conversation precisely because it destabilizes um, it destabilizes the dominant findings, it, it, or it tweaks them, it revises them somehow, and it's that kind of conversation in which all the promise lies of a global sociology. Again, it is what 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 I what I take us to be doing is not saying don't look at the U.S., look at the global South. That's not. I don't think that's what we're saying. What I take, what I understand us to be doing is to saying we should put. We should put in conversation what's happening here and what's happening there. And I think that's what it truly means to be global. I think to put into conversation, well, this is the experience of Chicago, but this is the experience of Manila, and this is the experience of Hyderabad, and this is the experience of Medellin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think that just means better sociology. That means better, better, wider, more flexible, more powerful, more cogent. Um, more real frameworks, analytical frameworks, it leads ultimately to a better understanding of the world. So relation is, is, it's not a choice of should I relate or shouldn't I relate. I I don't see it that way. It's it's how we relate. You know, there can be a kind of relation insofar as it's slavish. In other words, um, you know, what I'm finding in Manila, let me describe it in terms of an analytical framework developed with reference to Chicago. That's not what I'm saying. It still matters that we relate, you know, findings in Manila to Chicago in order to talk about how how we see the urban and how that might need to be extended or revised. So, so again, what I'm saying is relation is crucial, but it's how we relate that matters, not simple justification in terms of that's an assimilation. That's not what I'm asking for. I'm, I'm I think what we're suggesting is something much more cosmopolitan, but it, it requires relation nonetheless.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm curious to know from both of you if there are conversations at the editorial level about uh, you know, what Victoria was also saying. I completely agree. I think reviewer feedback is one thing, but I've found that editorial I think, um oh God, for the lack of a better word, I'll just say editorial spine to really speak up for uh global south ethnographies has been a bit lacking in sociology. And um I was curious to know if you are privy to any such conversations happening in the discipline right now or whether this is one.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can, well, so first I just want to follow up something Marco said, and then I'll I'll answer your question, which is how I understand it and how I'm also understanding um, what Marco just said is that the relationship and comparison is theoretical, right? It's about theoretically understanding, you know, social life, the urban, and that's the means of comparison and also the audience. Right, so so the audience of ASR is a particular audience, right? The audience of U.S. sociology is a particular audience. So I just I just wanted to kind of clarify how I'm thinking about that. I could tell you that I'm on the um, you know sociologist for Women in Society publications committee, and so we oversee. Gender and Society, as well, uh, which is a flagship publication of SWS, and as well as the network news, et cetera. And there are a lot of conversations, um, I think, particularly in feminist sociology, in terms of who's on the editorial board um, and how that relates, I mean, to whether it's special issues or who becomes reviewers. And so that I know that um, SWS has been having that conversation. Um, you know, for a while, um, I can I um, have also been. You know, I'm on editorial boards of, of other, you know, journals, and and usually that just means that I, you know, review a certain amount of manuscripts or or whatnot. But I think that um, that is one area that I have seen concerns and conversations, and often this is led by you know scholars who understand this kind of commitment you know i see it as a feminist commitment right to thinking about knowledge production whether that be global south whether that be you know indigenous or black feminisms or something about the pluralistic um vision of knowledge production and and sociology um but marco is a book editor of ajs so he might have a more insight into that but i can say that as on publication committees right that that has been something that has been raised. And that's why the reviewer boards, like the editorial boards are so important because they are often serve as reviewers. And so thinking about who gets invited to serve and who are, is reviewing, who is the editor and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, it's a tricky question, Sneha, but it's also a really, really crucial one. And um, it's too bad that it, we don't reflect on and contemplate and argue about this, this particular issue more in the discipline, that it isn't more central mean, editors make choices and they make choices according to their tastes and tastes are developed as a function of who the editors are as people and people as we know are embedded in particular milieu. Um, you know, it's not just a matter of identif- identifying the kind of variables that um, <laughs> that make them see the world in a particular way, but the fact of the matter is their taste. Really, is a function of who they are and what their experiences have been, and so they tend to reproduce themselves. In other words, right? So whether it's the editor of a book review or editor of a journal who makes selections, of what gets published or not, there's it's not just a, a matter of subject or topic; it's a matter of style, you know, or intellectual approach, or even method. You know, does this look like the kind of work that I can see myself doing? That I think is good work quote unquote, good work. I mean, that's a very, you know, to make those kinds of judgments really comes from very particular places. The problem is people universalize their tastes. They don't say, you know, this is my taste and I think this is good. They say, this is good work, period. In other words, this is what sociology is and what it isn't. And so that often makes them blind to work that's different and new. And yet, the discipline starts to die if it's not rejuvenated precisely by what's new. So there always needs to be a kind of revolution. Uh, and, you know, all the kings and queens need to be beheaded. They need to be toppled. And, you know, it's going to happen to us as it, as, as it, as it should happen now. Um, unfortunately, people like power. <laughs> so there's a broader dynamic here at work. Um, but to, to your point, the kind of articles that get elected. You know the kind of books that get reviewed. All of these come down, come, all these choices come down to the taste of of, of a set of people, and it's important that um, it's important that this taste be challenged. Um, At the same time, it's very, very hard to do, precisely because we don't talk about it enough in the discipline. We have this idea that judgments are somehow objective. Um, in, In a way, we know that they're not, but we act like that they are. So, um, you know, I I simply wish that this were a topic for public debate more than it is.
3: Yeah, Yeah, I I mean, and I think that um, one of the ways in which, so so on one hand, I absolutely agree with what Marco said, and there is a level of taste, um, but I also think that there are structural things that can happen, right, in terms of, you know, rotation of editors, right? Rotation of editorial boards, um, and thinking about that. I know that one of the things that, for example, um, Black Lives Matter has helped bring to the foreground more is so, and I'm on another publications committee. I'm on a lot of service, uh, for, um, for PSA, the Pacific Sociological Association. And for example, if you notice there are certain, you know, um, like sage for instance whenever you go in and you register as a reviewer or author you don't collect demographic information right um but <laughs> now at least i have you know bring up the importance uh you know and other people have long beforehand so you can track you know who is doing the reviewing and who is and i think that that there needs to be a broader commitment to these kinds of things and and i think that you know that there is this stumbling block of of objectivity, um, quote unquote, and thinking about what is good sociology, what is not. Um, and I think as Marco said, that there's always revolutions and pushbacks and and that sort of thing. Um, and actually change shouldn't be kind of piecemeal and it shouldn't be (laughs) slow. Um, but I think that there are opportunities and ways in which we can kind of help structure the discipline. And so that's why it's important. Okay. So I don't want to get on a uh, a soapbox. <laughs> but I, you know, I'm on, uh, I'm going to be on, you know, I'm on the nomination slate for committee on committees for ASA. And I think those are so important because it matters, right? It matters who is in the decision making role. And what are people committed to, Um and so, I, so I think that it's absolutely a matter of taste, but not only that, how it's shaped by our graduate training about what good sociology is, how it's shaped by how we write and all of these things. But I also think there, there are ways in which we can kind of change the structure to help encourage, you know, these movements and, and how Marco frames it, revolutions that can occur even after us, right? Because I'm sure everyone can critique us right? We're, no one's perfect. That's, you know, we have our own blind spots, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just wanted to to kind of follow up on what Marco said.
1: No, thanks. That's actually great. I was just going to say that um, I love that I've put both of you on the spot and I myself am leaving sociology as a discipline and moving to an interdisciplinary program. So I'm like, hey, <laughs> why don't you both comment about very controversial issues? And yeah, so sorry <laughs> about putting both of you on the spot, but um, thanks. This is very
0: very we don't see you <laughs> leaving. We still count you among us.
3: <laughs> well, and so that's part of it, right? Is right. why are people not considered sociologists anymore who go to interdisciplinary mm. departments, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's a reason also for kind of the kinds of work being done and who gets kind of hired and it's all politics right. and, and whatnot. But you're still a sociologist, right? Like you still are trained as a sociologist that shapes how you see the world that shapes what you write and and whatnot
0: yeah
1: i i think i've begun to own the label of ethnographer more so i just say that i'm an ethnographer (laughs) Uh, i don't know if i'm a sociologist but i think it is it says a lot that the minute I got this job, I felt a sense of immense relief. Um, mm-hmm. But precisely because of these reasons of like, I don't think I even want to write for ASR or AJS. Like that's just not yeah. something that I even desire to do, you know? So yeah, I mean, I think all of this um, is really, really interesting. And uh,
3: thanks for being so candid about it. Yeah. Yeah. And congrats on the job. Yay. Thanks. thanks.
2: <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. Um, and let me ask a question on behalf of, uh, all of the, the graduate students without jobs, um, who may who may be aspiring yeah. to them. Um, so uh, a selfish question, um, I think there's um, you know you both made a number of really important points, um, and there's there's a tension I think between uh, beheading the kings and queens, between challenging people's tastes. Um, and actually positioning yourself to get a job, um, and I'm sure that a lot of uh, ethnographers of the Global South sort of feel this. That's you know that's that's how we end up um, maybe feeling like we have to to direct our our analysis to a U.S. audience or or some, always refer back. Um, so what um, what advice, even aside from sort of the political challenge of of changing this what advice would you two who are um who are both very successful uh i think i would call you early career scholars doing wonderful work in the global south um what advice would you give to uh global south ethnographers looking to establish themselves in terms of in terms of dealing with that tension if i had one piece
0: of advice i'd say um, start identifying like-minded people within the discipline, whether they be other graduate students or um, early career uh, professionals, and to start working with them, even just to keep contact, start forming these intellectual networks, start having conversations with them, maybe even start collaborating with them, whether in organizing conferences or putting together things. Don't be shy about your intellectual vision. Seize it find other people who share it or who are more or less in the same page and start doing things that create space for other people. This is the whole point behind the special issue. It's an attempt to create space. Like I said, it's a beginning. It's certainly not the end. It's a beginning. It's an effort to create space. Um, And I personally, you know, there's a reason why um, a lot of the people we, um, a lot of the contributors to the volume are junior, either graduate students or early career um, sociologists um, it's because um, you know it's because in some ways they're more open to to participating in this space they're more invested in creating this space so that's what's important and so in order to, to um, in order to make the field look the way we want it to look it begins it begins with the effort to make space in small pockets and again I think this is what the the special issue is, but it doesn't have to take the form of a special issue. It can be reading groups, collaborations, conferences, symposium, even just maintaining networks of people to sustain the fact that your way of seeing of seeing sociology, it's not aberrant, it's not abnormal, it's not wrong. Even though some you might get that sense from from some people that it's legitimate, it's a vision that just doesn't happen to be dominant. That doesn't mean it's it's mistaken. Um, So in order to sustain that belief, you need, you need the support of other people. So that's the one thing I would emphasize.
3: Yeah. You know what? I agree a hundred percent with what, with what um, Marco says. I think that's so important to, you know, I, I also think that's a sign of, no, sorry. I was going to say something, but I'm going up. I think creating space for others. Oh. Sorry, my my um, son came in, and so that's why you hear some grunting in the background. Um, is so important. You know, I see myself as where I'm at because others created space for me, and my role is to help widen that space for others, right? And and I think exactly what Marco said. I don't really have anything to add. First, define. What is your intellectual vision? What kind of career do you want to have and why, right? Why is it you want to have that kind of career? What kinds of things do you want to do? What interests you? And, and exactly what Marco said, find people who can help you and you can create a community because I wouldn't be here without an intellectual community, right? I wouldn't be here if others haven't made the same space. So um, I, I think that those are all great points um, that I'm in 100% agreement with Mark Owen.
0: Yeah, let me just add that it's, it's so easy to feel like something's wrong with you and to write yourself off to say, maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe I, I can't do sociology because every time I get feedback, people just criticize my work or tell me that I'm doing it wrong. So maybe something's wrong with me. So look, there is a process of learning, and this is part of the process. But that shouldn't mean that the way you see the world, the way you join things together, the kind of sense you make out of um, you know the things you, you you're researching or you're studying that that's that should be discounted. If anything, in order to grasp that more tightly, in order to realize it, you need the support of other people who um, who won't say you're wrong, who might simply sympathize with your feelings of marginality, but it's precisely from these marginal places that innovation springs forth, that new ideas, that novelty springs forth and that the discipline is rejuvenated. So it's important not to take these feelings um, like a stone that will weigh you down, but rather you, there's a way you can take these feelings, these energies, this feeling of, of not being seen and to make it work for you, to, to seize it as an opportunity for growth.
3: Mm-hmm. And I think, sorry, sorry, we just keep going off on all different directions. I think that's so, so important. And supportive is also, right? Like, supportive people also push you in your thinking, right? Like, it helps clarify. So, so it's not this dichotomy, but that sometimes I think people can kind of create where uh, supportive means 100% in agreement, right? I, I think the best communities are people who empathize, who are supportive, but who also can critically engage with your work and help make you a better scholar, right? Um, and, and I think, for example, Marco and I helped each other be better co-editors on this guest issue because of our disagreements, but our disagreements stem uh, and come from a place of respect for one another. If I can speak for you, Marco, um, respect, <laughs> respect for one another, uh, respect for our intellectual kind of visions and contributions. And it's through those kind of arguments or disagreements that I think the issue becomes that much more stronger. That the scholarship becomes that much more stronger. And so I think that's the true mark of a of a supportive community. You know?
1: Yeah. Um- And, you know, I think this conversation has been so lovely and Alex and I have both learned so much. And I'm sure all of our listeners would be super grateful for the, for again, the honesty of your conversations, the political charge in them. It's all been really exciting. And, um, on a, on a final note, I guess, and to end with something inspiring, um, we would, we were curious to know what are perhaps the three ethnographic texts that each of you draws inspiration from and maybe also likes to teach with? Marco, can you
3: go first? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'd be happy
0: to. Um, happy to answer this question. Yeah. Um, I can think of three, mm-hmm. but let me talk, let me focus on two uh, that I regularly incorporate into um, what's essentially my intro to sociology course for U. Chicago undergrads. It's called Social Structure and Change. And what I like about these texts, first of all, neither of these scholars are traditional ethnographers. They might not even be identified or grouped together with more standard ethnographers in the discipline. And yet their work is so powerful. And let me talk about why I think they're powerful. So first, um, Bourdieu's early work, he has a volume called The Disenchantment of the World. A lot of people may not, um, you know, people go straight to distinction or they go straight to the logic of practice. And they tend to identify Bourdieu mainly as a, uh, as a, as a theorist, and of course that he is. But he his early work, um, he was an ethnographer of the urban poor in Algeria. And so his early work uh, culminating in the, the volume, The Disenchantment of the World, is simply, you know, it, it's a mix of theory and ethnography, a uh, description of the lives of the urban poor, their time horizons, their space, housing, uh, you know, all these topics that are, are, are very, very important. But the way he blends both, it's not just description, description becomes becomes analysis, becomes theory. And so that line becomes blurred. And I, and I love that. And I think there's something true that you really can't separate ethnography and theory. It's not simply a matter of, of simple description. Uh, the description itself becomes a form of theorizing. And that's nowhere clearer or, or better done for me than in that early volume, the um, the 1970s volume of this the disenchantment of the world oh, the subtitle I also love it's called the world upside down um, and so you know so that's one so I teach I teach essays in um, yeah, I teach essays from that volume from that so that's Bourdieu. The, the second the second quote-unquote ethnographer is fanon uh, France fanon particularly black skins white masks it's such a powerful 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 um testament, really. I mean, um, I don't know if you'd call it autoethnography. Maybe it defies those kinds of conventional classifications. But what strikes me about that is simply its raw power, um, its honesty, a kind of, uh, uh, there's a a complete absence of any kind of filter or or self-protection, any effort to guard himself from judgment. In fact, he invites it He's almost almost provocative in that way. Uh, he talks about his, his racialized desires. You know, I mean, the, the center of the book is this question. Is it possible to love somebody without race getting in the way, in a non-racist way? Um, and, and ultimately, his answer is no. But um, the book wrestles um, by engaging with various literary treatments or various autobiographies, but also with his own experiences. It wrestles with this question, with the question of desire, and the desire should be that thing that is free of race. It should be the thing that's purified of it. But it's but it it keeps coming back to the fact that it's not that even in desire we find ourselves imprisoned by this racial schema. Um, And again, the potential that I think is largely untapped in sociology, at least, that I see in the phénomenon, is its Oh, it's complete sensuality. You know, I mean, the power lies not in stringing together um, a number of propositions or in conceptualizing this or that in formal terms. Its power lies in its um, how, you know, how it just wraps you in, it, it, you know, it completely engulfs you. It makes you feel what he's feeling, and that's a form of knowledge that ethnography is uniquely suited to convey. Uh, but in my opinion, has been sorely untapped um in sociological work of ethnography so i mean those two top my list
3: uh yeah so this question i think is really difficult for me and it's funny how um sometimes we can be very in sync so i you know the question at first was thinking about like teaching and when I one of the classes I regularly teach is classical theory um you know and I published on classical theory uh in terms of the importance of you know how do we go beyond a token edition of Du Bois to classical theory you know syllabi and you know so so those are on my mind when I'm thinking about teaching and it's very similar to risk to what Marco was saying in terms of it's not traditional ethnography but what I love about it is this thoughtfulness but I teach Anna Julia Cooper um, and I think just her and these are to undergrads um, vivid descriptions about how life is like living in the South as a Black woman and kind of the you know the basis of intersectionality and thinking about kind of these thick descriptions um and kind of critical essays of theorizing based from thick description of her own life um and i think that that has been on my mind a lot just that's what i teach um and i also teach ida b wells um and she's a journalist right so again not a conventional sociologist nor an ethnographer Right. I do think that there you know, Marco is a, a former journalist and I don't know what you would think, Marco. But, I, you know, I think that there are differences, but that there are also similarities. And I think just the rich again, what connects these is it's people centered. Right. Um, and really trying to dig into the details of people and their, you know, one of my aims for my work and what I really appreciate about kind of the work that I'm inspired by is thinking about how people live and make decisions in the structure, right? there, I, I can never kind of remember this quote from Marx, but you know, it's about like men make their living of their own choosing, but they don't aren't in the structures of their own choosing. something like that. I'm butchering it. Apologies, <laughs> but kind of giving to life. Um, uh, people and so her work on kind of content warning, um, lynching and violence and thinking about um, you know the this reality of what happened versus who is in control of the newspapers and who is the politics I think is a real it's just a good piece of sociology right it's just a good piece of research and so those aren't you know ethnographers in the traditional sense and I could kind of name. Traditional ethnographies that I love, and I I think one of the um, you know guidance points is really that they're people centered, right? And Marco would say kind of thick description, and I think that's important. Um, but for me, it's kind of I frame it as people centered in part because I have um, aphantasia, and so I don't have a mind's eye, and so I don't have this vivid imagery. So thick description, and my daughter has the same thing. Um, and so, so for me, it's really these narratives of people and highlighting people and the structures in which they live.
2: Yeah, these were very these were wonderful recommendations um, and really useful advice and and wonderful insights from both of you. Um, and to take it full circle, just sort of reflecting on on what Marco said about the the importance of finding like minded people and building community, collaboration. You know, people who will support you. Um, and I think that's one reason to do something, or that's one of one of the the important byproducts of uh, of an edited collection like the or an edited volume like the the ethnographies of the Global South that you guys just um, just put out, um, which is wonderful, and we recommend that our that our listeners check it out. Um, and it's another reason for um, for founding a podcast uh, and and finding uh, interesting. Uh, people to to come on and to talk about their experiences. Um, so we just really appreciate both of you taking the time.
0: You're absolutely right. Ethnographic marginalia, the work that you do, the podcast, all of these make space for more people to enter. You know, they widen the community. And so they're part of the same effort, I feel. Um, so we appreciate that too.
3: Yes, Echo, thank you so much for for creating this wonderful medium uh to highlight other scholars and in that vein and um and having us on and and we appreciate it and and yeah so thank you